Welcome to the Theology Pugcast. Uh, we're glad to have you with us. We're not uh, pugcasting today from West Hartford at the Corner Pug. Instead, we are at Flatbread Pizza in South Weymouth. This place has been really nice to us, hasn't it, Tom? Excellent service. Excellent, Excellent people. service. Good people, and they actually turned the music off. They, I, I, I just, I, earlier I just mentioned, you know, the music's a little loud. We're about to do a podcast, and, and the waitress said, I'll take care of it. And now it's off. It's off, so, so we'll, we'll, we'll see how long it lasts, but for now, it's, it's off. <laughs> That's right. But we uh, have a fun show for you today, but uh, one of our members isn't here. Glenn Sunshine is AWOL. You know, he's something about family and holidays and all that kind of stuff, and so he's off on traveling, he's Michigan, and all kinds of things. But anyway, so, Tom, so, so Tom's up here, and I'm here, and we're joined by a friend of ours, and we'll introduce him in a second. But anyway... Just to remind you who we are, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut, the senior pastor there. There are other people on staff. And uh, I'm also the author of uh, uh, The Household and the War for the Cosmos and the book that will be hopefully uh, available in better bookstores everywhere sometime uh, in the early summer, a book on Tom Bombadil. And uh, it's actually going to be uh, sort of a... Uh, Based on, or actually, that one of our our shows was the was the uh, sort of the, the impetus or the the seed that led to that that uh, project getting off the ground. Publisher liked the show, and anyway, I've been contracted to write that book. But now it's Tom's turn. Tom, introduce yourself. There's a lot of Tom going on here. Tom Bombadil. I am Tom Price, <laughs> systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon Conwell. Theological Seminary, and uh, you're going to hear about more Tom here today. But um, but yes, uh, I'm working on a lot of writing projects. Uh, one of them we mentioned before, uh, uh, Evangelicalism Lost, <laughs> um, how, how uh, social theory is subverting a lot of the historic Christian faith. So that's one of the works in process, and so uh, other things will be spilled out as they take shape. I was I was visiting I was I was on vacation this past Sunday. I was in our church and visiting another church, and the pastor there mentioned to me that the founders he had seen the founders documentary and saw Glenn's take on social you know theory or basically you know critical theory in the Southern Baptist Convention. And anyway, so some of the things that you're going to be writing about tie into some things that Glenn has done and yes. talked about and all that. That's Absolutely. Good. Yeah. Well, we're joined today by a friend of ours, uh, someone we've known for a while, uh, Tom Plotkin. Tom uh, has got a really fascinating background. Uh, I was introduced to Tom by Tom Price. Price. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so Tom and I got to know each other a little bit. And Tom, you were helpful to me when I was writing uh, on uh, the Aeneid, Aeneas, his story. And uh, you're kind of like an authority on the Aeneid. You've just like immersed yourself in that story. And uh, so we had lunch one day, and I was afraid that you were going to tell me I had gotten everything wrong <laughs> and that I had to go back and rewrite the entire thing that I had done. But you, you actually were, uh, you know, you, you affirmed me. So you and Tony Esselin was the, was the guy I was, I was scared of, you know, that when Tony read it, he would send me a note saying, what are you doing messing around with stuff you have no business messing with? But Tony liked it and actually did a blurb for a book I wrote that has that... Esselin is scary. <laughs> I've never even met him. But, but, uh, I'll tell him. I'll tell him you think so. It'll make him laugh. <laughs> but anyway, Tom, you know, 
Tom Price and I, and Glenn, we all know you, but our listening audience does And You've got a fascinating background. You were talking a little bit about sort of the, the tripart or sort of this marvelous uh, sort of uh, collection of, of things in your life that it makes it for a little unusual sort of range of experience and, and knowledge. So why don't you fill our listeners in on that a bit? Unlike Tom or Chris or 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 or, or, or Mr. Sunshine, who I'm apparently <laughs> sitting in for, uh, I, I am not a credentialed person uh, in, in the realm of theology or philosophy or as a pastor. Um, but I but I've, I've, I I basically um, came from the culture industry. I was I was in Hollywood. I was I was a failed screenwriter, but I was uh, I was also a, 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 a worker bee in TV production. Uh, on the show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, yeah, uh, that's where, right. I, where I was, where I was something of a brain trust for the creator uh, and of the spin-off show Angel and Firefly. Hmm. And, so you uh, worked on those three shows. I did, uh, but before that, I, I would say I, I was lucky enough to grow up in New York City in the 1970s when there was a very act as a, as a teenager and a that child. That was the real New York. The real New York, the, the one where you could die, you know, at any, at any moment. <laughs> I was uh, in Times Square in those days. That's uh, exactly it, right. Apparently, it's coming back. But, 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 <laughs> Oh, but, yeah, the new mayor. But he, there, he was nostalgic. There was a very vital <laughs> film culture, and there were many places you could see new foreign films and independent films, old films of every stripe. There were there were twenty different venues, and, and I basically, being an, a, an unpopular wallflower, I lived at the movies, and it was sort of my entree to literature. Ultimately, I think even to faith in some way. Wow. Uh, sitting there in the dark, dreaming with other people, yeah, uh, is yeah. sort of conducive to the, that that kind of you know transcendental thinking. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was a film major in college at Wesleyan in, here in Connecticut. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And I, I bummed around for a while, again, doing film-related, but... Not. Now, just to fill our people in, Wesleyan is not uh, like a... Uh sort of a community college. I mean, we're talking about the, the one of the Little Ivies. It was Little Ivies, but it was sort of the marginal one when I, in 1982 when okay. I went there. <laughs> and it, uh, uh, there's a wonderful lady there who basically started a film department by just occupying a room and staying named Janine Basinger, <laughs> who was, who was a, you know, my, my, my second mother, great teacher. Anyway. Uh, oh, we got the pizzas. Uh, Here you go, gentlemen. All right, thank you, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. More thank beers you. for you in the back or water drinking? I will have another of the same. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, in a little bit, I'll definitely get another. All right, thanks. Thank you. Okay. So we're at Flatbread Pizza, and we are getting flatbread pizza. So I, I went out to Hollywood to try to become a screenwriter, and it was an ignominious failure. I wasn't very good, but I did, I did work on a bunch of TV shows while I was out there, and uh, around the time I hit 40, I was like, this isn't working for me, or, you know, I had a growing family, and I shifted gears and, and went to law school back here in Connecticut, and I'm now an attorney. Uh, oddly enough, the net effect of, uh, I'm, I'm a writing attorney, I'm, I'm generally the go-to guy for briefs and appellate work, Thank you. And, and I actually found I was becoming a pretty good writer as a brief writer, and, and that, that inspired me, you know, so that's at 40. At 54, I started writing a novel, uh, so, uh, uh, which is a, a... Now, that novel is based on the Aeneid. And we come full circle, and it's sort of my, my effort at being a, a New England inkling, uh, basically, <laughs> to, how, to, how to sort of resacralize the world through mythological forms that are not necessarily Christian, but tie into right. many elements that are under the surface. Right. Um, uh, because I found that as an attorney, I was a really good writer. I thought I was a terrible writer when I was in Hollywood. I was out of step, and and so it freed now, me. Now, um, now, what gave you that impression? 
Now, yeah, obviously, you did some stuff. You you were working on shows, so yeah. that opinion wasn't necessarily the opinion of other people. It was it was anxiety. I had, I had the feeling of it. I, I, I because I'm so aware of the history of the medium film more than I, I had the feeling of giants sitting on my shoulder, yeah, 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 and it yeah. just hindered me. Having to produce and churn out legal briefs actually freed me. It was a very liberating experience. Wow. You know, and, and you're persuading an audience. You're persuading right. a judge. Right. Uh, it, it, it made it much more real and less of an, an intellectual exercise. So, uh, but um, so when I was invited in, I began thinking about you know what 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 can I contribute to these august theological minds? Uh, <laughs> when they, and I began thinking about the movies and the movies as an art form, a vanishing art form. Hmm. Uh, I, I I think when I think of the movies. I think of you're in a very large dark room with a very big screen, you know, bigger than any 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 system you can have at home, right. no matter how good. Surrounded by other people, sort of dreaming while you're awake collectively in the dark. Um, it is not an accident that when the old movie palaces from the you know the the 20s, the 30s, the 40s were, were shaped like mosques or temples, yeah, they, they were they were they were sort yeah. of secular houses of worship. Right. And um, I began thinking like, is there anything the movies have to offer us? Uh, they they've done much to debase the culture. Uh, they but they've done other things as well. Right. Um, so that, that's great stuff. Now, now. Kind of, sort of help us put a, put some of this into the framework of your own life as a Christian. You were a convert later in life. This is, you know, you didn't grow up in a in a home that that uh, was a Christian home. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. I, I grew up in, in sort of like the archetypal Upper West Side New York Jewish intellectual enclave. Both my parents were former communists. My mother may have not been quite so former. Uh, uh, and, 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 uh, but she was a Trotskyite, so I think that yeah, yeah, made it okay. Um, but, uh, it, 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 but, but they were very, unlike many similarly situated people today, they were sponges of intellectual activity. So we lived right near the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Let, let, let's stop there just a minute. You made a comment in an offhanded way <laughs> that I understand. That's a beautiful comment. But something's been lost in terms of the appreciation for for higher, you know, sort of artistic expression forms, those sorts of things, that the world that you grew up in still appreciated, even when they were leftist, materialists, there was still an appreciation for good writing, good, you know, music. High art. High art. It wasn't all, you know, sort of propaganda, in other words. I'll, I'll go further. Like, a couple of things. I remember in the late 70s when, when uh, you know, seven members of the American Nazi Party wanted to march through a Jewish enclave in Skokie, Illinois, and the ACLU jumped to defend them in getting their permit, and my father, like, uh, you know, saying, no, no, this is the right thing to do. <laughs> you know? Uh, those, were the, those were the commies that I knew when right. I was growing up. <laughs> and... And, um... Also, I had something very strange going on in my head when I was small. <laughs> the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, was, which is an enormous Gothic cathedral, right, right. was about six blocks from my house. And I used to make my dad take me there hmm. all the time, which he did with pleasure. Hmm. From there, it was a short step to the 430 movie that was on TV hmm. in New York. <laughs> To what, which seemed to run Bible epics nonstop. <laughs> Nicholas Ray's King of Kings, 
the Ten Commandments, right. and I'd sit there enraptured at these films. <laughs> so I, I, I made my, my mother was a big reader. She read to me when I was small. She read me The Hobbit. Interesting. Uh, uh, huge, now this is so stereotypically Jewish. Huge formative experience. So I, I, I was like, okay, read me children's stories from the Bible, which she did. <laughs> this atheist woman with pleasure, yeah. right. absolute right. pleasure. Right. Um, and and then I was like, okay. There were like these weird Bible story records with sound effects. And I stuff. remember that. And I remember having like Samson, and that, that's the one that stuck in my head because it's sort of the, the appalling atrocity that right. they had a cartoon that when we, the ones I have had so, animation with yeah, the record. Uh, in, in this house with not a breath of the spiritual, I was sort of like invading it, you know. Right. And my, my parents were totally willing witnesses to this. I, I and, and I, I you know I did not become a Christian for another thirty five years right, basically. Right. But, um, but the seeds were planted. You had a, a body of knowledge that you would have been introduced to by your atheist parents. Right. And I remember, um, I, 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 you know, I talked about the Aeneid. I was sort of an amateur classicist always. And I, I saw Richmond Latimer's translation of the New Testament. And he's, he's the, one of the greatest translators of the Iliad and Greek tragedy there is. And, well, it's Richmond Latimer. I'm, I'm, I'm probably, he hates right. the Greek. I'm going to buy it. I, I had no spiritual thoughts in my mind as an adult. And the first time I read that, I'm like, hmm. There's something going on here. And it wasn't the turning point at all, but that was definitely the big one. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, uh, and you know, I, 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 I don't think he had any, I, I think he wrote it secularly. I think yeah, he did sure. it. I just want to nail down the Greek, you know. Well, you know, but, th but this is so alien to, I think, some of our listeners. I think some of our listeners would understand it. And it's just marvelous to, to, to reflect on a little bit. This is something we can't get into right now, but obviously we live in a different world. That kind of thing isn't happening much, mm -hmm. if at all, at all. My mother was also very much, a, 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 you know, a, on the left. I was taken to art museums as a kid. I grew up in the shadow of universities. That kind of thing. I was in that, and I remember a, a kind of, uh, well, an intellectual climate that wasn't so politicized. Everything today is politicized. Yeah. And you know, I remember a world in which you could have conversations uh, that were informed and respectful with people from very different set of convictions, a very different set of convictions than your own. And uh, we've lost that. Anyway, that's great stuff. So what what, what was sort of like the point uh, that you can, you know, you sort of look at and say, well, there's where the transformation occurred when I became a Christian. Okay. Basically, uh, uh, um Around the time I graduated from law school and became a lawyer, so now I'm like, you know, I, I don't even want to say how old I was at that point. Um, there were sort of like rocky things in my marriage and my family. And my wife had a full-blown visionary experience, wow. which I will not go into detail. Yeah, yeah. And when she told me about it, I think kind of wondering how I would react, right. my response was, of course you did. Huh. You know, I, I totally believe you. Uh, you know, she definitely kind of pulled me down the rabbit hole. So, but um, you're not, you're not, you're not humoring her. No. You really believe it. I totally believe it. Yeah. I totally believe it. I, I was like, I wish I could have one of those. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Now, so you were open to the transcendent. Mm -hmm. What made you sort of prepared for that? Was it this other stuff you were just describing, maybe? I think so. I think it was sort of my cultural background. I had another, I had other, a few weird little moments mm -hmm. that never left my, my brain. Right. Um, 
small encounters that planted seeds. Yep. But um, this this was sort of the you know your jump net net. Well, now I'm living with it, and it right. you know drove me over a big girl. And I started going to church, saying I'm kicking the tires. I don't I don't you know right, I'm not. Right, right. And and I began reading the Bible and being being me. I, I, I read it from beginning to end. <laughs> I mean, the, the, I the Latimer story. The Latimer story. I'd read the gospel, and, and, right. but now I like open it up. And then when I was done, I like okay, let's take another translation and start again. <laughs> and it, it was somewhere when I was reading the first the first read, I'm like, ah, this is sort of like the law. It's like every every word connects to every other word. It's clearly uh, it is telling a story from the beginning to the end, yeah. and, and every piece connects to every other piece. That's a marvelous thing to reflect on. So you had a background that prepared you to read in that way. Most people don't think you know, right. or read in that way. Most but, people think the Bible. Where some people might see a collection of fragments, yeah. I saw uh, I immediately saw a whole. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think most people think of the Bible as just essentially the Book of Proverbs, just yeah. everywhere. <laughs> Everybody's looking for a little snippet. I would, It'll help them get through the day. I but not even that. Even smart people talk about it. It's like a rag bag. Well, you got history. You got yeah, poems. Yeah. Right. Well, you, got, you know. What's interesting know, is, I mean, just a, a theological point is that the when when the early church um, put together a lot of the confessions and creed, formal creed statements, we the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed is. Even though they were dealing with the, the metaphysical issues of theology, those aspects that deal with God, creation, the nature of human selfish, but they do it the same way from the biblical plot line. Mm -hmm. It is, it is. We believe in God the Father, the Creator of all things, heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ Son. So, it, it is done in sort of the exact way Scripture sets it off: Creator, redemption, reconciliation. That's the frame. And so what you were able to see when you read the text was actually what is confessed in, in when Christianity puts together its highest theological statements of what the Bible contains. Well, this is great, great stuff, and I think it's great to know, you know your, your story a little bit. <clears throat> Pardon me, Tom. And, uh, but what we had kind of talked about before we even began the show, I'd love to get into it because it's really rich. So you, you know, have some thoughts on the art of filmmaking, and uh, you were reflecting a little bit with us about a book that you read and uh, have reread here recently, I think, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. Can you describe a little bit of what, what you're getting at with that? So there was a recent reprint, a uh, new edition of a book, I don't think it's ever actually been out of print for very long, called Transcendental Style in Film by a gentleman named Paul Schrader, who was a very interesting guy, rather a unique career in American cinema. He grew up in the Dutch Reformed Church in, in the Michigan Upper Northern Peninsula. Something he depicts in the late 70s movie he wrote called Hardcore. Quite, quite unflattering. Like, yeah. I've been there. I've been there a couple of times speaking at George things. C. Scott. Yeah. Was the, uh, and uh, he, in, in the Dutch Reformed Church, very strict, right. um, not allowed to see movies. Uh, but he said, but I was a very good biblical exegete. Um, and he said, sneaking out and seeing at age 16 Viva Las Vegas in a drive-in ruined my life. <laughs> he went to Calvin College during the Vietnam War, which is still a conservative institution. <laughs> and then he kind of broke away from faith and family. He wanted to write movies. And he's of the generation of Spielberg and Scorsese and Brian De Palma and George Lucas, who went to film school and then went into the movies. It was the first, that first crew. Yeah, I think I'm going to try the Conehead now. Conehead? May I have another? Yes, you may. And he is, in fact, very closely connected to those filmmakers. So he went to UCLA film school, and he wrote a dissertation, which became this book. And then just jumping forward in terms of his life, he was a, a critic uh, in, at the LA Weekly, the free paper there. 
and uh, began writing screenplays, banging them out. And interestingly enough, something that became very big in the 80s and 90s, he sold one of the first giant auction screenplays where you're a freelancer who gets all the studios to start gambling on it, huh. and then you, you make an enormous prize for a movie that bombed called The Yakuza, because he was sort of into <laughs> Japanese culture with Robert Mitchum. But he proceeded to write Taxi Driver. He oh, became sure. Scorsese's in-house screenwriter. Yeah. He wrote Taxi Driver, yeah. he wrote uh, Raging Bull, he wrote New York, New York. Wow, wow. Uh, he wrote the first draft that was rejected for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Wow. Uh, why is it Why is it all these uh, retrobate Calvinists go on to great things? Right. <laughs> and he, he directed very strange movies that were less commercially successful, but American Gigolo, the very bad remake of Cat People, a very good movie called Blue Collar. Why well, that? Sure. Detroit with Richard Pryor. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and he, he's had a very offbeat, interesting career as a, as a writer-director, but... Um, he, he is often credited, like I, he says, I have a tidy analytical mind mm -hmm. that comes from, you know, that Being that heritage. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway, jumping backward, when he was 24 years old, a, a film student, he went to see a, a, a film by Robert Bresson from 1959 called Pickpocket, which I think was getting its Los Angeles debut. And he said, wait a minute, I know what this man is doing, and it's not normal filmmaking practice. This is a spiritual experience. Hmm. This is there's something going on here that is not your average, you know, mm -hmm. movie that works in your emotions. Hmm. And Bresson is a director who, who was operative in France from the late '40s, died in the early '80s. Uh, his last film was in the early '80s. Made very few movies. Is sort of known as a pillar of isolated integrity. I make movies a certain way, mm -hmm. that, in a manner that nobody else does and you can take him or leave him. And he comes from sort of a, a Jansenist background. Okay. Uh, which, uh, how would you describe it? Well, basically a, a, a Catholic Calvinist. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, what, what some will argue is kind of a stricter Augustinian, but yes, yeah, that's and, right. Uh, and yeah. Just to give our, our folks and so, the reference at home, listening at home. But I think you're right. Uh. <laughs> well, of course, we're talking about Blaise Pascal. That's right. You know, Point, 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 Point Royale, all those guys. Yeah. Very rich. Yeah and very uh, cerebral, uh, sort of a strong Calvinist, or not Calvinist, Augustinian Catholicism. Yeah. I have a mouthful of food. So, Brisson, <laughs> People in the, our listening audience love that. <laughs> That's right. They're, they're sort of early Brisson and late Brisson, but in the middle, there are four films that Schrader concentrated on, or battened on, that are called The Prison Cycle. It's hmm. the prison metaphor, which immediately alert Christians, the, the prison mm. is a big deal. And in fact, my conversion story has to do with that, mm. but that's for another day. But basically, Diary of a Country Priest, um, yep. a, man, a Man Has Escaped, Pickpocket, and I'm missing one, The Trial of Joan of Arc, or not to be confused with The Passion of Joan of Arc, okay. um, are his films about people in jail who are touched by grace. The jail can be literal, uh -huh. it can be metaphorical. As in a man escape, it's a resistance fighter trying to break out, mm. or in Joan of Arc, it's a woman embracing her prison cell, <laughs> uh, or or and pickpocket as well about a career criminal who, in a moment, who basically realizes that cell is where he always belonged mm -hmm. and where he will find love and, and, and redemption. Great. Right, here's um, round two. Round two. Here thank you. Go, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you much. Thank you. stood outside of commercial cinema. He was an arch formalist. And Schrader said he's doing three things. The first is he depicts the everyday in a way that's not quite the everyday. He makes the mundane look like a jail cell. 
so it's a sort of like a magical realism? No, it's actually very realistic. Okay. Um, almost pedantic, like every shot holds too long, the way it would be if you watch someone walk out a door and then keep watching the door after it closes. Okay. He's very fond of gambits like that. Very almost leaden reality. Um, okay. There's then a disruption, a disparity, an emotional moment that can't quite be explained merely by the screenplay where something breaks through and then it end, the last thing is stasis. We end in a place of stillness. Uh, and, and Schrader saw this pattern uh, done through various means of, of through editing, of sound, uh, that uh, Bresson does not use, this is my favorite part about Bresson, he, he stopped using professional actors. He only, huh. And he says, I hate psychology. All an actor does is psychology. Huh. I want an icon. I want flat. Wow. I, want, I, want, wow. I want inexpressive. I want the viewer to provide the expression. Yeah. And, and, and in Schrader, I, mean, I had the advantage of the book because yeah. Tom brought me a copy. I've already started indulging. But he makes this little distinction between what he calls the icon and he, talk, he calls this sort of uh, intellectual realism versus this kind of, as you were just talking about, ordinary realism. So Bresson is actually finding a way to articulate the intellectual realism, if I'm using his term, Schrader's terms properly, through the kinds of things he's doing with ordinary realism. Mm. Is that right? Yeah, he's very fond of doing, it, it, there's, there, there are no beautiful shots in a Bresson movie. He often cuts people's heads off. The huh. compositions are unbalanced. Hmm. Huh. Lots of emphasis on natural sound that's sort of amplified. No music. Um, hmm. The editing patterns are a little eccentric. Um, and the tempos, it's not slow, but it feels slow uh, and deliberate. Um, and uh, So we're definitely not talking mass consumption here. I'm sorry? We're not talking mass consumption. Exactly. <laughs> Schrader uh, noticed at the time he was watching Brisson that there was a Japanese filmmaker, the grand old man of Japanese cinema, Yasujiro Ozu, uh, had very similar formal tics in a very different context, um, the Zen context, mm -hmm. where, so Brisson's alienated from a society, his people are in prison, they're trying yeah. to get out or they're trying to get in. Uh, Whereas uh, Ozu made uh, uh, films in, in very specific Japanese genres that were sort of light, bittersweet family comedies. Hmm. But Schra Schrader knows he uses many of the same formal devices hmm. to much the same effect. Um, now, we should probably stop for our, for our listeners. Define formal for us in this context. Uh, not, not dealing with the, the, the written word, I would say. It's okay. using purely visual means of editing, camera movement, camera placement, movement within the frame, sound. Right. Um, the purely technical means of cinema. Okay. And Schrader says, this is a style, it's not a story. It's, it's a pro applying a certain rigorous set of style, uh, stylistic kind of ticks right. to assert right. to, uh, uh, Brisson said I can use this on any story, yeah. and it'll come out with the notion of grace in the same way. So this formal approach, he's associating with a, a sort of in a communication of grace. Mm -hmm. And he saw it across cultures. That was that was sort of what let him know he was onto something. He's onto something that's universal. And then he saw yes, and then he saw elements of the style in non he calls it transcendental cinema. Yeah. In in more material cinema, usually missing an element, like it goes only so far because it can't. But it actually does a lot of interesting things along the way. Huh. I would cite someone like Stanley Kubrick, who often yeah. views the action in this very uningratiating, distanced manner yeah. to yeah. come to a materialist as opposed to a transcendent analysis. Okay. He's, he's touched by it. There's definitely something there. Yeah, yeah. So now, I think, you know, something that is present in this way of thinking that 
I think maybe alien to, pardon me, many people, mm -hmm. is the idea that formal elements can communicate. In other words, we live in a sort of a pro, sort of yeah. a, a way of thinking where, where if, if it's not explained, there's nothing there. Whereas what you, what I think you're saying is that it's the very method or the means by which things are being done that conveys something. Bresson withholds many of the pleasures of cinema, so we're almost demanding that they, they appear, and he uses very sparse means, kind of a kind of minimalism, yeah. so that the, ideally, if, if, assuming you don't walk out of the theater, you start reading, projecting your own emotions into what's going on, and okay. that's sort of that's sort of how it happens. So this can be a transformative experience in the mm -hmm. sense that it takes you into the life that you live every day, mm -hmm. helps you see things maybe you've been missing. The Brisson movie I would actually recommend to everybody is the movie he made after he was done with his little prison cycle, which is called Oh Hazard Balthazar, which I'm told is a pun in French. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know. So I told you Brisson uses non-professional actors. Yeah. This was the ultimate. It's a donkey. It's a story of a donkey. I think, I, I think I've actually, I think I've seen this. It's pretty much as far as you can go in the non-professional actor. And it's about a donkey in a brutal rural village in France. I've seen Who this. passes from hand to hand and owner to owner and yeah. dies a terrible death. And so this it, is the donkey that's being abused. The donkey that's being abused. Yes. It's loved and abused. It's okay. both. Yeah. But, it, it, it's, but it's, it's always, it's so materially, because Brisson has this very matter, it is just a donkey. You can see something Christological in it. Yeah. But it's always just a donkey. Mm -hmm. uh, his noise, which the movie glories in. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yes. um, it is the saddest movie I've ever seen in my life. I bet. I yeah. And uh, the, 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 the very provocative, sometimes Maoist, sometimes communist, sometimes Brechtian, French filmmaker Jean Luc Godard, who was a brilliant critic. I don't like his films, but as a, he, was, he started like Schrader's written critic. When he saw Balthazar, he said, "This is the entire world in 89 minutes." Wow. wow. Um, so if, if if anyone listening to this gets yeah. intrigued by what I'm saying, run right out and actually see the movie Schrader doesn't write about Oh Hazard Balthazar. Yeah. Where would you find it? Um, it's it's a Criterion Collection DVD, so library, which are sort of the boutique DVD distributor. Um, so libraries that have an art film DVD collection mm -hmm. will have it or can get it through interlibrary loan. Uh, Criterion has its own streaming service now. Okay. And, and some of these Great. movies are on Hulu as well. They have them. Wow. So that, I would, that, that's what I, where I'd say try to check it that out. That may be the justification for streaming media. That's right there. <laughs> that's right. You can yeah. finally have the, that kind of art accessible to people. Which brings me to something I, I think I meant, I don't know if I mentioned this before we had the, the, the we were rolling or not, but that the filmmaking experience, it's a cliche to say all art kind of has its roots in sacred and ritual procedures. Right. But mm. film's a little different. It's a creature of consumer capitalism and pure commerce and exploitation and carnivals, you know, basically. Right. That's where its roots are. Mm. Can, can it be saved? It's no accident that Brisson is an art filmmaker. He appeals to a minority audience. Can this kind of work be done, not through maybe the same formalist means, for a majority audience? And then... What about the experience of seeing the movies, which a filmmaker like Brisson, like a filmmaker like Kubrick, like a filmmaker like Scorsese is dependent on? I want people watching an image that's bigger than a wall in the dark with a lot of other people experiencing it at the same time. There's nothing like that feeling that the rest of the audience is experiencing it with you. I gave a lecture on movies to my daughter's uh, middle school class, high school <laughs> class at Master's School, which was still there. Sure, right. and, and I asked everybody, how do you watch movies when they come out? Who goes to the theater? One person said they try to go to the theater every time to see a new movie. Huh. 
we're watching them at home and on right. our phones, and we're, we're, lo we're, lo we're losing yeah. something. Well, again, yeah. this is something that's alien to many people, but if we have an appreciation for the means by which, great, the means by which something is seen or, or, or perceived, that there's some kind of reality or, or sort of message in the thing itself, sort of the med the medium, mm -hmm. you know, Marshall McLuhan and all that kind of stuff. That's right. Medium yeah. is message. Then it makes a difference how you see it. It's not the same, even though in a sense it is the same. And the movies we usually do go out to see are not the quiet movies. They're always yes. the big noisy movies. Right, right, know, the, right. the quiet movies kind of demand right, that right. sort of concentration. Right. Now, you know, films like Tree of Life, mm -hmm. you know, Malik and those guys, you know, people, people sort of who are trying to do... Trying is the operative. Yeah, yeah trying to span that gap. Yeah. It, it, what are yeah. your thoughts on that? Um, you know, it's funny, because when I was a kid, Malik's first, Malik made two movies and then vanished off the face of the earth <laughs> for 15 years, and I, I kind of wish he'd stayed gone, because those two movies are great. But one, <laughs> one, of them, one of them is fantastic. Days of Heaven is such a good movie, and actually it's not, not a transcendental film, but he lets the audience do the work, and it's a beautiful movie. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's like a Faulkner story. It's, it's this... This sort of hey, um, our friend John Sundet has just <laughs> arrived. Have a seat, John. People in podcast land, right here. He's not going to be mic'd up, but he's with us. People love this, John. They, they like to know that, we, that we're real. <laughs> but anyway, Tom. <laughs> so, so Tom was just talking about Malik, someone I know that you like. Appreciated. Tom is less taken with him. <laughs> you know, Tree of Life was a nice try, I, and I saw it. I saw it at home. If I'd seen it in a theater, I might have liked it more. So, so any, but but getting but getting to that, would you say that that people like Malik are actually just sort of a higher form of popularizer? No, I think he's serious. I, okay. I, do, I do think he's serious about what he's doing. But. Now, I admit he's, I'm willing to give you that, but I'm just thinking, you know, when we think about who do film producers who have some, some uh, you know, artistic chops, who do they watch? You know, they, they probably know, okay, I need to produce stuff that's going to make money, and these are the things that, that, that can make money. These are, this is the way you do it. You know, so you're playing to the taste. You've mentioned more than once be interesting to go back and note how many times you said it. The audience giving something or, or sort of being required to do something. Mm. Most people don't think that that's entertainment. You know, that, mm. that, you know most people right. think, well, I want to go is just sort of be completely passive and let everything be done for me. Mm. Whereas what you just described is, an, is, is something that requires something of the viewer. And almost similar to the way Shakespearean theater worked, where the, where the, where the people watching were very much participants in. Yeah. Of course, there was a, there was kind of, you know back and forth dialogue, but but in the sense they they weren't meant to just sit there and watch. Yeah. They were meant to be, participate in the in the even the banter right. back and forth. Yeah, your your typical Hollywood production requires almost no intellectual engagement. Right. You know, no work on the part of the of the that's viewer. Right. Viewer comes expecting something that's more or less uh, you know completely uh, you know. Devoid of any any demands, you the, just you just experience it. It just is right there for you. Even the the, 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 the medium is sensuous and, and it throws yeah. you into the experience of the people up on screen, and that suspends thinking. 
very right. often. Uh, it, 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 it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's 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 it. That, that's why I say Brissot starts withholding stuff that we're used to seeing. Malik does too, I, th I think, to some degree. I don't know if he does it to good effect, but he is he is doing it. But like the person who's usually who's usually cited as like our our most sort of. I don't know, our, our official great filmmaker, Scorsese, a movie like Goodfellas, which I think is a very good movie, it throws you into the, it uses all the tools at his, at his command, which are vast, to put us right in the shoes of this gangster to see the highs, the lows, and, and a, spectacularly where it all goes off the rails. Right, We've right. been sort of tempted into enjoying this, and suddenly it's not funny anymore. Yeah. You know, and he, and, but you're there, it's, it's a sensual experience, and you're, and you're, you're not thinking about it, you're, you're in it. Now, does, is there a way that you know film can be uh, created so that it's working at several levels? So I talked about the transcendental style, this 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 sort of sparse uh, and bare you know means, uh, and you see it in elements of other non-transcendental filmmakers. I think I cited Kubrick, who's a very uningratiating director. I, I've always been kind of shocked at his popularity. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, in the '90s, there. By, by the way, let me just jump in on Kubrick. You know, uh, at church, uh, Triss, mm -hmm. Triss knew Kubrick growing up. Oh, he really? was actually at the premiere knew personally? of personally. Yeah, personally, 2001: A Space Odyssey in really? what was it, 1968, 1969, 68. in 68 in Manhattan. Oh, wow. he was at it because because Kubrick had actually. Uh, Done some photography for his mother. His, Triss's mother was the editor of Look magazine. Oh, interesting. Kubrick was a look photographer when he yeah, was like, as right. a teenager. Yeah, that's right. So, he would so also, he, he Triss, would also, Triss, a member of my church, was the. Was he the would son also of show him. up at theaters to see if they were projecting his movies correctly. <laughs> um, and, 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 uh, but so in, there's a filmmaker who I would say is an interesting happy medium. Uh, I, my again, pronunciation's an issue, and, and starts a little movement. I, I don't know if he's actually the source, but film, as with Brisson, filmmakers arise globally who sort of are, are catching up on what he's doing. Very different. Krzysztof Kozlowski, oh, yeah. who's a Polish uh, director, Polish, yeah. who made a, I, I heard a horrible thing today. I heard the, the people have been kicking around an American Decalogue. Which oh, no. So, no. Uh, around the time the that martial law, he's a Pol he was a Polish documentary filmmaker yeah. in the you know in the communist era and a, and a teacher as well. And he said around the time the regime began to tighten up, not quite the solidarity area, he had a fear that he was filming stuff that they could the police could use. Yeah. So he uh. said, so he said I, I decided to start making fiction films even though I had no aptitude for them at all, <laughs> and, and like I, that's not what I do. Yeah. And after martial law was imposed, he somehow, I don't know how got Polish television to accept a pitch of his, of 10 short films an hour each, based on the Ten, Ten Commandments. Commandments. Wow. And, then, um, and this was run on television, yeah, right? Yeah, it was run, so uh, this it, is like it, 70s, 80s? Uh, late, uh, yeah. early 80s. It's this one, when, when it was right after Solidarity was yeah. smashed. Right. And his, uh, his, his, he had a writer who he teamed up with, and uh, initially he was gonna use it sort of as a classroom project and let his students direct one, and he said, these are too good, I'm doing them. Yeah. Uh, and and the, each one, they're not so much Religious, or, or, but they're always about, and he's always very cagey about his his faith. Um, but they they have to do on ethical dilemmas treated dramatically, very very well. Yeah. It's, it's set in a housing project. You'll see them run into each other. Project. And 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 it's, it's sort of you start getting yeah. a sense of the intersection of these lives. Yeah. 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 And that when yeah. the wall came down, uh, he he was became kind of a culture hero. Huh. And and he was he was he came to France and began making French Polish co-productions. Which he would actually build the two nations into into his screenplays, 
his movies became about the interconnectedness of random lives kind of colliding yep. like particles. Uh, double Life of Veronique, right. which takes the premise like, imagine we all have a double. There are two women, one in France and one in Pol Krakow, yep, who are it. kind of the same but different. Right, right. Which has also uh, a haunting sound it, it, it is, track. It, it, it's one a haunting of the most movie. haunting. Then he made a trilogy. Uh, he always come up with a gimmick like the Ten Commandments. He didn't quite stick to it. Like some of the episodes, like this isn't quite the commandments. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's three. But he, he made a movie called uh, Trilogy: Three Colors, three colors Red, yeah, White, and Red Blue, and blue yeah. uh, uh, for the three colors of the French flag. Um, and that were again sort of French Polish co-productions, which begin as you're watching the stories start to overlap about these very disparate people, people colliding, the random kind of beginning to form a pattern. Tragically, he he got he died of a heart attack at like 56 yeah. right after. There were huge hits. He he could write his yeah. own ticket. I always say cinema died with Kozlowski, huh. late like late 90s. Um, but there are a few other filmmakers who took this on as a theme. And the style is not withholding. It's actually yeah. very sensuous and beautiful. Huh. Very dependent on music. Like Bresson said, no music, you know, ever. Right, right. Um, so I would say there's a Hong Kong filmmaker named Wong Kar Wai. Uh, there is, um, I would say, one movie by the director Paul Thomas Anderson, Magnolia, is very much about this. Live, hmm. you know, intertwined lives colliding to the point where you think there may be a hand moving behind all this. Yeah. Anderson, when he wrote Magnolia, said, I was shocked to wake up one morning and realize I was writing a Christian film. It was the furthest thing from my mind. Now, th th we got to get into that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, I, I want to, before I lose the thought, just go back to Kozlowski just for a minute because it, I'll give uh, the audience kind of a, a, a detail of one of the episodes. So the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. And it, it's a demonstration of a, a dad who is into science. He puts all of his confidence in science. And his son wants to go ice skating on a pond or a pool or something of this nature within this complex. And the father is just listening to the weather forecast and he puts all of his confidence in this God. And, uh, and apparently his father says, well, it's safe. It, the temperature is only gonna go up to this point. Well, anyway, it was actually getting warmer then the scientific measurements happen. So the boy ends up, if I, if I remember Gosh. right, die, ends up dying wow. because of it. And this is one of those, uh, this is one of the episodes, starts out with this one. It's the first one, and people first often one. say like, and this is, in, this is in Poland during communism, the materialist right. regime yep. is Not funding the, the film. Yes. Yes. But, but like at, at the summit of, <laughs> yeah. of, of, of repression, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I mean that, and that was just one of them. Like, Thou shalt not kill was a great one. Um, as, as a short, it, it, the middle one is is about a completely a, a criminal personality. There's absolutely nothing sympathetic about him at all. Who commits a completely random, unplanned killing and is executed. And it's just this blunt, you know, it's Thou shalt not kill. You yeah. Know, and and what what is worse, the, the state murder or yeah, or right, the killing, right. the random accidental killing, not accidental, wow. but. He performs and the, uh, the the other movies he did are very haunting aesthetically, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's why I think he his goes opposite the, the the style you were mentioning earlier. Mm -hmm. And I think if I meant they were sort of launching pads of figures like Irene Jacobs mm -hmm. and uh, Binoche, mm -hmm. uh, different different uh, right. French. Uh, he uses stars. You yeah, know, yeah. This, you know, yeah, yeah. He has a very different approach to that, but uh, but a very haunting. He worked with a composer, a Polish composer, Preiser. Yeah, his name, yeah. Preiser. Yeah. Well, the, you know, when you when you develop an aesthetic sense, you understand that you know there are certain media uh, and, and and forms that help to communicate what you're trying to communicate. Whereas I think in most popular sort of understandings within evangelicalism, and the people who think this way are often really great people, fine people, good Christian people. Yeah. But there's a very sort of crude, wooden, one-size-fits-all sort of thinking yeah. 
that uh, it is very propositional, very much, you know, we know what we want to say and it's basically going to be the speech of our hero at the, at the very end of the film. Hmm. <laughs> and everything is leading up to this moment of come to Jesus, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. But what you're describing is a much more uh, sort of rich and, and sort of expressive way of thinking about reality as a whole. Because what we're talking about here is reality and reality communicating to us in a range of ways, not just in the theater. We're actually drawing on reality when we approach a film like this or make a film like, like any of the films you've described. But it's sort of like a sliver of reality mm -hmm. that's communicating. So when we think about the Lagos, yeah. Lagos is something, is someone yeah. pervading reality. Yeah. And so everything in reality, from this table that we're sitting at to the lights that are, you know, above us, everything that's going on around us is speaking. But we, do we have ears to hear? I think a, a person of, of highly, a person with a highly developed aesthetic sense. Has a has an eye or a nose or an ear, you know what I'm getting at, for the for what this particular part of reality is saying, mm -hmm. and how can I use that mm -hmm. to speak in a film or a book or a a, a beer? <laughs> well, and it's interesting, Tom had mentioned this notion of you know kind of the way in, you know the sort of uh, the genealogy of film. And I guess maybe, you know, I'd be curious, because I don't know enough about the, the earliest origins of it. You'd mentioned sort of Carnival, which I, I think Carnival still has, a, I mean, people like, um, you know, some of the, uh, I can't think of his name at the moment, the, the one who wrote on Leisure. Um, oh, Piper. 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 Piper, Piper right. would argue sort of Carnival is very much connected to festival, which is very oh, yeah. much connected yeah. to ritual. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, there's sort of a... The, the, a pattern, the very, or a rhythm. very thing, mm -hmm. and and then, right. then you think of different places. I mean, the, the film that comes out of like Tarkovsky. We can get to that a little bit later, but I mean, very different set of circumstances. And I don't, I don't even know how these people, you know, initially got into it. I don't know enough of their history. Um, but it'd be curious to trace those other things. But there is something I think just on the uh, just reflecting on the nature of film itself is what it does bring into an art form is kind of historical movement. Which, which actually does connect it in some sense to what liturgy does in, in, the, in the rhythm of it. I mean, liturgy is, is rhythmic in a service. It's an enactment. It's a, you know, kneel, confess, do this. It's, it's a way of, you know, ritualizing and patternizing redemptive history leading up to the word and the sacrament. Um, and so, it, in a way, film has a capacity, and I'm not, I'm not make, equating liturgy directly with film as, as an identical substitution medium, but I am talking about the way in which I think it, you aren't able to capture some of the rhythmic and the historical in ways other forms of art haven't been able to, because you can actually bring historical movement within the medium. We're talking about film. Film itself, and I don't know. I don't know if that's something a lot of these figures. I mean, I'm sure that they're always dealing with it themselves, but I think a lot of Christians don't tend to think about the spiritual dimensions of that, that you, you actually right. have here a very dynamic medium right. um, to, to work with rather than just, you know, um, something that is more static. Like. So we're talking about the origins of film as being commercial, mm. you know, sort of like having made the deal with the devil from the start. <laughs> so, but these 
directors are working to bring something out of the medium that maybe wasn't anticipated to, in, when, it was, when it was established? Um, is it possible that maybe, are they working, I guess, are they bringing something to it or are they bringing something out of it? Yeah. That's a good question. I, I think, you know, if you, if you look at it from a formalist perspective, as Brisson would, they're, 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 they're taking something out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something there's something there that was that, all, that's always ex- there. That's ignored. Yeah, you yeah. Know, or narrowly. In spite of the intentions yeah. of the people who began the industry. That's right. 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 When I talked about this, well, this other genre I'm intrigued by of, 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 of intercolliding atomic particles um, <laughs> in the 90s and aughts, a great example by a guy who I do know watches these movies, even if he doesn't let on, is Michael Mann's <laughs> Heat, the crime drama, huh. where you have a, a, a constellation of people in this very alienating, oppressive Los Angeles. The architecture and the freeways bear down on the characters, Ooh. who find they're all interconnected in, in, in ways that surprise them. Um, there is almost something weirdly... Uh, the movie ends with the Pieta. It, it ends with, with, with huh. the cop who's finally who's killed yeah. his quarry, yeah. holding him in his arms, <laughs> um, and realizing he has more in common with him than he doesn't. You know, um, but, you know. but that, that, that requires eyes to see, right? You know, and, and a sort of understanding of, of what the formal is saying. But unlike the Brasso movies, that was conceived as an action movie with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino <laughs> that any anyone can enjoy. Right. But I, I think it's there. You but know, that gets me back to this idea of levels. Yeah. So like, for example, when I preach yeah. Yeah. on any given Sunday, any given Sunday, when, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> when yeah. I preach on any given Sunday, I know that, that I'm, I'm speaking to everyone from Tom Price <laughs> to a guy with an eighth grade education who is on public assistance and, and is uh, struggling just to sort of think clearly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just to have his head out of all the things he's struggling with. Right. So you kind of have to like think on several levels, you know, yeah. when you when you're writing your sermon or you're speaking. Yeah. yeah. So people now what that means in a certain sense, no one is entirely satisfied. If you get what I mean, because mm-hmm. everybody is like looking for the thing that they're able yeah. to relate to or right. sort of hear. That's right. Um, on the other hand, uh, shouldn't. My role, my task as a pastor, be to speak to everybody. Now, should should I be so sort of uh, focused mm-hmm. on a particular people group or yeah. social class or yeah. or subculture that no one in the world would be able to relate to what I just said except those people? My yeah. wife would say you have to raise them up. Well, that there's you know. that, sure. But then there's the realistic sort of sort of limitations of what people can be raised to mm-hmm. within the confines of our present age. <laughs> so, and then there are people, and I, and I come across this all the time, who resent the, the, the raising. In other words, they really want, they're, they're like the people, they're, they're, you know, when we think about cinema, we think about like the blockbuster. Yeah. That's what they want from the sermon every week. Yeah. They, don't wanna, they don't wanna work. Yeah. They want lots of pyrotechnics. Yeah. They want a lot of a, a motivist, a great, motivist, a great show. That's right. That's right. They want, they want lots of. You know, I had to put it this way. I had a, I had a, a, a black friend who is a had more than one service that he in his church on Sunday morning. So he said, different crowds. So you know, there, there were the, there were the old timers. There was lots of sauce, baby. They liked a lot of sauce. <laughs> then he had a buppy congregation, which is all black urban professionals, Ivy League educated kind of folks. They wanted something much more like a. 
like a you know a CEO delivering the the uh, <laughs> the report on the you know the company's you know year. <laughs> These are both. You know, this is within a black congregation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you get what I'm getting at. Yeah. But when you have everybody in the room, I can't just talk to Tom. Yeah. You know, I got to talk to Grady. You know what I mean? You know what I mean, Grady? Right. So I got to take to everybody. So that means that everybody gets something and, and nobody gets anything, that everything they want. Right. <laughs> yeah. But it, but is film, can film be like that or does film have to work more sort of uh, narrowly? You know what I mean? We're also dealing with a different landscape because we're, we're kind of talking nostalgically, I think, about a film culture that I'm very sad to report. I don't think exists anymore. Yeah. We're, we're talking about streaming and, and, and binge-watching, you know, serialized dramas. Right. Um, it, it's, 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 it's going away. I, 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 I hope it comes back. Yeah. But uh, there, there's the sense of, you know, we've turned a corner and, and the movies as we knew them, which I, which I started out by saying, let's talk about the movies. Right. I'm, I'm wondering if, they're, if, if it's, it's like... You know, I wonder, you know, I've got six young men in my church who are into film and want to pursue film right. for their livelihoods. Yeah. So I think about Bradley. Yeah, and I think uh, doesn't Glenn's son interested in film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we ought to get these guys together with you sometime. Tom. I'd love to. That'd be yeah. great. They would, I think it would be an excellent thing for them to connect with you uh, because you'd be able to speak to them about some stuff that I can't. I'm going to tell tales at a school. My, 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 the guy who lured me to Hollywood was my college roommate and who sort of was always sort of in the background of my own career. I went to work for him when I was a non-writing executive. And uh, he, he had a, uh, I, I mentioned Buffy, I don't wanna, I don't wanna like, be telling tales. So that's <laughs> who he is. But yeah. he went on to directing one of the biggest movies ever made, commercially speaking, part of a franchise. Uh, and, and then directed the sequel and then parted ways with the studio because I don't think it went optimally, even though the film was a success. And like burrowed, I'm going right back to HBO and doing a series there because they leave me alone. Hmm. Uh, hmm. There's too like there's too much at stake yeah. on these motion pictures. Nothing yeah. is left to chance right. and very little is left to the creator anymore. And if it's a small independent, you're not gonna see it in the theater, you're gonna yeah. see it at home. That's right. You know? Yeah. So that, that kind of film, you know, so he was doing the giant blockbuster everyone went to see and 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 found it wanting. Like in TV, I, the writer is king. Right. You know, uh, right. but my problem with TV, I used to be very enamored. Uh, I, I have not watched a television show since 2004. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. Um, this is a man of principle. It, 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 no, it's not only that, you don't, am I correct, correct in remembering you don't drive? I don't drive. So <laughs> this is a man of principle. The, the TV, the, my, my, I'm going to watch my friend's new series Bad when it comes on next week. But it's, it was PTSD from working <laughs> television. And, and uh, my, 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 my point being, I, I do think that while there's this thing about serial television, like you grow with the characters, stories can take off in really unexpected and brilliant directions. You spend time with them. It's like a 19th century novel mm -hmm. as opposed to the movie where you say, yeah, but you know what? Yeah. Setting aside two hours to see a movie has that kind of sacral ambience. Being at home in front of the TV with a beer, yeah, half asleep, it becomes a way of time wasting no matter how good the programming is. Yeah. And one very telling thing, when, when Scorsese's The Irishman was released briefly theatrically, me and my boss played hooky and went and saw it because we knew we didn't have much of a window. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, then, and, and so three and a half hours, I was riveted. 
I flew. I didn't go. I didn't go to the men's room once. I'm not kidding. And 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 everyone I talked to who saw it afterwards, and I broke it up into four day four days. Wow. Nobody sat through the whole thing. Huh. It's it's a totally different experience at home. And people yeah. were saying it was long. It was boring. I didn't feel that way in the theater. And I don't think they would have felt that way either. Now, is it because you've developed the sort of the uh, attentive uh, sort of strength or the attentive uh, sort of capacity mm -hmm. to, to I do that? I think no. I think it's the, the success of the film. I think the movie. You know. I think it. But it, why can't they do that? Oh, what? Well, they were watching it. At, people don't think they go to the theater anymore. They were watching it. Was it, 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 comparing it, it to the yeah, watch. And it, it, it had a limited theatrical gotcha, release, so gotcha, a lot of people gotcha. just didn't have the opportunity. Yeah, so they can cut gotcha. it off and come back to it. Yeah, so I didn't follow that. I get you. Yeah. I remember, and, and I mean, really, what uh, a few things got me into widening my range of film. Um, I was dating a girl when I was in my Oxford years who had written her uh, one of her master's thesis on Eisenstein, the montage during mm. the communist and Soviet. And that's it kind of opened the door to um, Tarkovsky, that opened the door to Kieslowski, and, and you know, a bunch of the different films. But there's a little. Um, little film house on the outsides of Oxford in Jericho called The Phoenix. And it played all of this stuff regularly. Um, Tokyo Story, I mean, yeah. everything. Uh, that, they, they play Tokyo Story on Valentine's Day. I mean, this is <laughs> kind of... This is Ozu, the Japanese guy who trained... Oh, okay. Yeah, very, out. very, in a very long... There's a great scene in that movie. Uh, you'll appreciate this now. So that these these dads are commiserating, I believe, at a bar. Yep. And they're talking about how their son has just turned out to be only an average medical doctor. <laughs> and they're crying, like, almost on the verge of suicide. Oh. Um, that level of expectation. If you only end up average, you know, it pushes the parent over yeah, the... Yeah, right. Um, I know that world. <laughs> yeah, that world. But it, it was uh, it, it kind of opened opened that world to me, and and a lot of conversations that opened up in that world. Um, but really, it was this whole notion of of how it, it connected very profoundly with all of the philosophical and theological questions right away from me, starting to see things mm. that were more that moved away from just immediate gratification and um, you know sort of profound technological experience mm -hmm. to actually moving into deep, I mean, deep questions. I mean, you often think, I mean, we were always, you know, the propaganda here was so much that, you know, most of what was coming out of Eastern Europe was just materialistic. And then you go and read something, what is it, is it Sacrifice? What is the one uh, Tarkovsky does in, um, he films it in Sweden. Sacrifice was the last Sacrifice. So, I mean, the first scene is an uh, older gentleman coming up on a bicycle and someone else meeting, and their first topic is a conversation about God. Hmm. And of course, in the rest of the film deals with the, these so we've been talking about Tarkovsky, who was mm -hmm. this Soviet filmmaker, yeah, you know, who, yeah. who's, 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 who got, you know, he sort of fits into Schrader's schema, except he, 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 he kind of pushes it to an extreme and goes into sort of deliberate unreality. He'll, mm -hmm. he'll, he'll yeah, it, yeah. you know, shots that last forever, and then stuff happens that's physically not possible right. within them. So, and Schrader said about him, they're not quite transcendental films because Tarkovsky is always the hero. It's about the artist's journey. You know, <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. this sort of Wagnerian figure. Well, uh, yeah. yeah, there's a, there's a thought. You know, yeah. it, is all art autobiog autobiographical? You know, in the sense that you know, it's always about something that the artist is dealing with. He's an interesting case because, like, his first two major films, yeah. Andrei Rublev and Solars, fit within generic Solars, yeah. generic 
prototypes, even though yeah. they're eccentric. Yeah. He makes a movie called Mirror, which yep. is the most unbelievable. It's, it's basically about his parents and his childhood. Yeah. It, has, it obeys no chronology. Yeah. It never says anything overtly, and it's dreamlike. He, he abandoned narrative with that movie, and it was his, it's the stuff he couldn't talk about, yeah. you yeah. know, uh, mm -hmm. about his family and growing up in Stalin's Russia. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, but maybe maybe that's the thing. Maybe in a situation like a communist society, there is no commercial element. So you, the people who are drawn to a, a medium like film, are people who are really wanting to think about important things. He was a dissident and he was punished by being kicked out. But he said, you know, I, I, the West is much worse, you know, and to negotiate yes. to, as commercially. And yes. he said, the thing about the commissars, I give them the screenplay. And they're literal-minded idiots. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put anything in there. It was the imagery. The, the physical, they couldn't see, even is, imagine it. Right, but see, right, that's right, what I'm right, after: right. is the way in which he was able to communicate what he wanted to through the film rather than right. through the script. And, so, and, and, yeah. And he, so he said only when they saw the film, like, oh dear God, what did <laughs> we do? What did we find? And then it was too late. It was booked in all the festivals. Yeah. <laughs> but you think about like, uh, are you familiar with Leo Strauss? Yeah. yeah. yeah so the, the sort of the idea of esoteric communication within a hostile environment. Mm. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've got this, this sort of homespun theory about creativity. In creativity in this theory is that, you know, it, it's actually uh, more, it's, it's richer when you have limitations, when you have things that are mm -hmm. sort of constraining you so you can't say anything you want. Like the worst thing, place to build a house is in the plains of Kansas, you know, just flat ground <laughs> right. and you can do anything you want. Yeah. Uh, you know, where you see real creativity is where you have, you know, limited resources, you've got materials that are crooked and awkward to use and you've got physical constraints on the ground. That's when you get really interesting houses, you know, houses you want to live in. <laughs> And maybe that's maybe that's the problem of too much money, too much freedom, too much just flat everything. Just to and indulge me with a personal anecdote, yeah. the Aeneid thing was like, okay, I hate making things up. I'm really bad at it. <laughs> so like, I'll take a story that's pre-existing. Yeah, yeah. And then okay, but I'm gonna I'm gonna there'll be and then I'm gonna take a, 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 an archaeology and sort of a climatology and a milieu that's pre-existing and learn as much as I can. What are Greek religious practices? What's the climate like? Yeah, How do they build yeah, ships? Yeah. How do they build cities? You gotta finish like, this like, book. And like, yes. and like, so I have, I have all this stuff and like and I only now will I start deviating from the givens and making stuff up in limited limited drops. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the less I make up, the better. You know, the, yeah, more, the right. more restricted my horizons, the more I'll be able to invent. The hilarious part is I outline the thing within an inch of its life. I sat down to write the first scene, something completely unplanned for. Uh, you deviated from the entire Completely screen. just came out. Like, yeah. oh, okay. Uh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the serendipity is the creative and spirit experience. Yeah. Anyway, this has been great. This yep. is, I think we're at, we need to wrap things up. It's been great to have you, Tom. And, you know, Tom, we, we got to talk about some other stuff that you've brought up. You know, you've mentioned two or three things that would make great topics for, you know, later shows. You know, maybe when Tom's on vacation or I'm on vacation or Glenn's on vacation, or we can even have you with yeah, we all of us another, here. Yeah, we got another mic. I think it makes right, it right, interesting. Right. Well, I, I, have, I, have, I have tried to put a plea in your ear about the, the, the first inkling John Milton. Yeah, yes. Yes. we need to do that. It would be good to do something on Milton. Anyway, uh, anything you want to say as we wrap up, Tom? No, this is a fascinating topic. I'd, I'd love to uh, indulge it more, even on, on I mean, specific film and, and films. Um, and I think it, it weaves so deeply into a lot of the issues we've been uh, talking about. And I wasn't exaggerating. We got like six guys in my my church youth group who would love to sit down with you and just talk film. I set up a meeting. I'd love to do it. Yeah, we got to do it. Anyway, uh, anything else you want to say as we conclude, Tom? I think I'm good. 
All right. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having oh, me. Oh, it's been great. It's our, been great. Thank pleasure. you for giving us the time. Anyway, thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your support. By the way, we've noticed a bunch of great reviews on iTunes of the show. We're, we appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're told we are like the most technically unsophisticated podcast in America. <laughs> but we're growing on a regular, you know, we get, we get all these people, you know, who send us emails and texts and stuff like that, and we, and we, we pay attention. We, we're just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed that I can't respond to everything. You know, when I, when I like, when I read about people like C.S. Lewis that wrote people yeah, like letters, you know, handwritten, you know, I was like, how did you do that, man? Yeah. But anyway, we, uh, we, if, if you send us a, a message or something and you don't hear from us, it's just, it's us, it's not you. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, don't be discouraged. But we, we do appreciate how you have shared the show with the people, the audience. And the we audience. love hearing from you. And yeah, if we, we do can love get hearing. back, we will. <laughs> yeah, and, and the audience continues to grow every week, and the ratings come in. They've been great. Uh, but thank you very much for, for supporting the show. Anyway, bye-bye. Bye now.